Welcome to Walk in the Shadows with me, your host, Tim Woolworth. This is episode three of the second series of our podcast, a series dedicated to exploring the mystery of psychic detective work. So far, we have covered fantastic cases and exceptionally accurate psychic detectives in the first two episodes of this series. In this episode, we are going to explore the case files of another psychic detective, but more importantly, we will also begin to add some context on how people like Irene Hughes or Philippe Doron are capable of finding both bodies and murderers alike. If the following content intrigues you and you need to hear more, there are bonus episodes in this series for our Patreon subscribers to listen to at their leisure. With all topics we cover, the Walk in the Shadows bonus episodes expand upon the concepts in each season. For access to our bonus episodes and several other perks, including free merchandise, please visit our Patreon. The link is in the show notes. If I may have one more ask before we get to the good stuff, like and subscribe to our podcast. If you really vibe with what we're doing, please leave a review and tell a friend or two. It really does help. And now, we'll continue our exploration into the perplexing mystery that is psychic detective work. To move forward with your understanding of psychic detectives, a key point that we have not touched upon yet in this season is a term we've used a lot. Psychic. We will just skim the surface of Psy theory in this episode, as it will be covered more in depth in future series that explore Psy from various angles. I do, however, want to make sure that we are all on the same page when terms like psychic and medium are used in this series. I just mentioned psychics and mediums in the same sentence. For the general public, the two terms are often interchangeable, but it needs to be recognized that they are not. Psychics and mediums are two separate types of sensitives with discrete abilities. Generally, a psychic is a person who is able to obtain information not available through the normal five senses. This is why psychics are often said to have a sixth sense. A psychic can also be referred to as a sensitive or an intuitive in most circles. As we have already heard in this series, there are people who have visions, even at large distances, from dreaming or holding on to objects. Psychics can also glean information from telepathic communication with the criminal, or through dowsing. More importantly, the information appears timeless, as they can happen in the future, or be a representation of what happened in the past. The psychic is said to have ESP, an acronym for Extrasensory Perception. ESP is not one thing, but rather one or more of several things that fit under its umbrella. You are said to exhibit ESP if you have any of the following. Telepathy. We've all seen telepathies in movies or cartoons. Telepathy is mind-to-mind -mind contact where you have access to thoughts that belong to other people. Or sometimes, you have the ability to impress your thoughts upon others. Precognition. This is the ability to predict by seeing in your mind's eye events, people, and or places in the future. The things that you may see may be wholly foreign or quite familiar to you. Retrocognition. This is the opposite of precognition. With retrocognition, you are able to see events and people as they were in the past with amazing clarity. Psychokinesis. 
often abbreviated as PK, or called telekinesis by some. Psychokinesis is the ability to move objects without physical force being applied to them. If you listen to our Noisy Spirit series, you should be quite familiar with PK by now. The Clairs. The Clairs are several individual abilities that some psychics exhibit that specifically relate to the senses. Clairvoyance. This is the ability to see things, like a person, place, event, object, etc., at any given point in time. Clairsentience is the ability to feel. This often involves knowing the sensations and emotions of a person that is in your presence, or possibly in another location. Clairaudience. Clairaudience. This is the ability to hear things. It could be a conversation between two people in the past, or the sounds of an event happening like a murder. This typically pairs with clairvoyance or clairsentience. Clairaliance is the ability to get psychic impressions from smells. While rare, some individuals are able to smell a perfume, for example, and are able to gain an impression about who wore it. Clairgustance. This is the ability to get psychic impressions from, you've probably guessed it already, taste. I have not encountered a case file featuring clairgustance. If you have, drop us an email and tell us about it. In addition to these abilities, there are psychic abilities that are under the umbrella of ESP, such as psychography. This is commonly known as the ability of automatic writing, where another consciousness takes over your hands and writes its own messages. We saw this in the case of Nella Jones in the bonus content for this series. For those that are not Patreon supporters, Nella helped solve a crime with automatic writing. That crime? A piece of art worth millions was stolen from a British museum by the Irish Republican Army. Also important is the art of dowsing. In episode 1, Philippe Dorant was mentioned. If you remember, he helped to find a missing person by dowsing over a map. Dowsing is the art of using a device, such as rods or a pendulum, to obtain answers from an unknown source, locate missing objects, or to find things like water and mineral deposits. Finally, there is the art of psychometry. This is the art of being able to envision the past by touching an object, such as Irene Hughes holding the skull of a person who died from a heart attack. I know that this is a lot to take in. When we are talking about psychic abilities, it can be any of the above listed. There are even more types, and most categories break down into further classifications. But these other recognized types of psychic abilities are not germane to this particular series, so we will not cover them. All this aside, in rare instances, the dead will communicate with the sensitive to relay information. In these cases, the sensitive is not a psychic per se, but rather is classified as a medium. A medium is a unique type of sensitive. They commune with purportedly deceased persons to gain information. Mediums are what we typically picture as gazing into a crystal ball, trying to see a loved one for the person sitting across the table from them. Being friends with a lot of mediums, 
I can tell you that this is a Hollywood trope. Most times, a medium will just sit with the clients at a table and are able to see the loved ones surrounding them. The best mediums can give readings remotely with verified accuracy. I know that being able to commune with the deceased sounds a bit out there. As a quick anecdote, I have sat in on public readings at the Spiritualist Encampment Lilydale. There is a public outdoor area where guest mediums give free reading galleries. These mediums were able to pull out of the air the names of people, places, things, and animals that were important to somebody in the crowd of about 100 random persons. With few exceptions, they were dead on the mark, if you'll pardon the pun, to an eerie degree. There are ways to verify mediumship ability. In fact, mediums have been studied in lab settings. There are numerous scholarly articles on mediums that you can find. One example was conducted at the University of Arizona, where eight students sat for a mediumship session. Four of these students had experienced the death of a parent, and the other four had lost a peer or close friend. To complete the experiment, eight mediums were used. An important note is that the mediums were not at the same location as the students and did not know who they were or whom they had lost. Each medium read two of the sitters remotely. The only way that they could gain any information about them was through contact with the dead. Telepathy was ruled out because the students were unknown. The conclusion of the research was that the results suggest that certain mediums can anomalously receive accurate information about deceased individuals. The study design effectively eliminates conventional mechanisms as well as telepathy as explanations for the information reception, but the results cannot distinguish among alternative paranormal hypotheses, such as the survival of consciousness. The continued existence, separate from the body, of an individual's consciousness or personality after physical death, and Super Psy, or Super ESP, retrieval of information via a psychic channel or quantum field. There are entire university departments, degrees, and institutions dedicated to exploring the ideas of Psy, mediumship, psychic abilities, and the survival of consciousness. You can be rest assured that we will be covering these topics in future seasons. But for now, hopefully you understand the difference between psychics and mediums. With this knowledge in mind, let's take a look at another prominent psychic detective, a psychic who has had a long career working with police departments to help solve cases. Nancy Meyer-Zetley has worked on over 1,000 police cases over 50 years and is still going strong. She knew of her psychic abilities from a young age as she traveled the world with her father, a United States diplomat. By the mid-1970s, Nancy had settled down to a married life and had a couple of kids that were being raised at their happy home in Newark, Delaware. In 1973, Nancy had begun opening herself up to her psychic abilities. She was working within her mind each day. She tried to embrace the mysterious information that arrived in images and sounds and attempted to reorganize them in a way that made sense. She was becoming aware of this information, and as she embraced it, the information came more regularly, 
and with increasing accuracy. Eventually, Nancy found that she had a knack for locating missing persons. She did this mainly through visions that put her in the same time and place as the person. And on rare occasions, she could use precognition quite effectively. For her first case, there was a missing girl in New Jersey. Nancy tried to locate the girl using her abilities as a test. She had a vision of where the girl was, and successfully pointed out to the police on a map where she was located. The girl was found by a railroad track, in some water off the side of the spur, directly where Nancy said she would be located. In 1975, a case close to her home in Delaware led to her recognition as a psychic detective. It was July 4th when the vision overtook her. She was reading a newspaper article about a man who survived a houseboat wreck. In all, there were three boaters who were traveling on a houseboat, named the Funhouse, from Ohio down to Coral Gables, Florida, through the use of the Erie Canal, the Delaware Bay, and the Intracoastal Waterway. The houseboat was owned by 55-year-old Frank Abel. The other two people on the houseboat were Lee Sillenberg and Bill Bonds, both 19 years old and looking for adventure. Lee and Bill had met because their parents belonged to the same yacht club in Cleveland. Sailing had been an integral part of their lives, and this trip to Florida from Lake Erie on a houseboat was something that they had embarked upon, despite objections from their parents. Frank Abel, also a member of the yacht club, needed two more hands to be able to successfully sail to Florida and offered the two a trip there and bus fare for their ride home. Lee's father had told his son that if Frank Abel could not afford a plane trip home for him, he shouldn't go. Lee resisted, and eventually his father realized his son was going to go on this trip whether he liked it or not. On their way to Atlantic City, Lee and Bill would vacate the houseboat in every city at Morden to explore a bit, then come back after a night on the town. The previous night in Atlantic City was no different. Being bleary-eyed early in the morning, they left Atlantic City, and by mid-afternoon, the houseboat had traveled beyond New Jersey via Cape May, and it was out in the Atlantic, making its way to the canal that would land them in the Chesapeake Bay, protected from the rough waters of the Atlantic Ocean. As an aside, I have been on the ferry from Delaware to Cape May a couple times. It is a long journey for a ferry, and yes, even in the middle of summer, the waves can be quite significant. Deciding to take this trip on a houseboat was definitely a brave choice. But if all was clear, then the trip across this small part of the Atlantic could easily be accomplished. But there was a problem. As soon as they were on their way, out into the ocean, the transmission was starting to slip due to a transmission leak. Frank had noticed a lack of power at times, and the propeller shaft slipped. Frank kept adding more transmission fluid. He only had some 50 miles to go until the funhouse was safe in the Chesapeake and more than enough transmission fluid to get him there. As they puttered slowly towards the bay, dark clouds gathered and lightning strikes could be seen in the distance. At this point, they were only five miles from their destination and they decided to motor on. As they slogged across the Atlantic, the waves grew higher and choppier. The transmission started to slip even more. The lack of power from the transmission was becoming very apparent, sometimes slipping for 30 plus seconds at a time. Meanwhile, 
The houseboat was being tossed around since it had no power to cut into the waves. The funhouse was being lifted and dropped down into the trough between two wave crests, sometimes eight feet at a pitch. The houseboat was taking a furious beating. Frank, Bill, and Lee knew that it would not sustain going against the storm for much longer. A decision was made to run with the storm as opposed to against it in order to keep the houseboat from being dashed apart in the troughs. So Frank began to turn the 34-foot houseboat, which was a slow task with waning power. When the funhouse was at its most vulnerable point, parallel to the waves, a 10-foot crest broadsided the boat and turned it on its side. Another rolling wave came across the ocean and the boat was flipped upside down, slowly capsizing. Bill was in the pilot house when the boat was flipped upside down. He found himself gasping with just inches of air when he went under. He looked around for the others in the pilot house and could not find them. As he gave up searching, he gulped the last of the oxygen from the cabin and dove into the water. Under the Atlantic, he saw a green light from the depths and swam towards it. He emerged topside in the ocean, able to breathe freely again and barely treading water. In desperation, he climbed onto the bottom of the boat as it bobbed upon the sea. Realizing that the boat was ready to fully sink, he untied a boat bumper and held onto it, knowing that it would help him stay afloat. Then the Atlantic claimed the funhouse as its own. Bill was left floating. At night, in the dark Atlantic during a raging storm. As he took in the surroundings, looking for Frank and Lee, he noticed some lights in the far-off distance and began to pump his aching body towards salvation. After an exhaustive swim clinging to a float, he finally reached the marshy shores of Delaware. It was nighttime. Frank and Lee were nowhere around. Being happy that he barely survived and exhausted after swimming for miles in the rough Atlantic Ocean, he fell asleep on the sand and didn't awaken until the next morning, Friday, July the 4th, and then his story was relayed to the authorities. The article about the miraculous survival of Bill was published on the following Monday. That is the same article that triggered Nancy's vision. She found herself viewing the inside of the pilot house. She witnessed Frank Abel getting tossed into a steel strut by the waves, causing him to stagger in a daze. Another man, she knew it was Lee Sillenberg, was tossed out to sea. Lost. She had to pull back from her awareness because she knew that Frank would drown and she could not locate Lee no matter where her mind's eye searched. She recognized that when she focused on Lee, the vibration seemed off. She reasoned that maybe he was unconscious somewhere. So Nancy, like all the other psychic detectives we've covered, reached out to the police with her vision. The Delaware police officer seemed noncommittal about her vision, and she doubted that he had even written down a single thing. Dismayed, she followed the advice from her husband who told her to call the paper instead. If she was confident of her visions, and she needed to get the information out that Lee might still be alive, and maybe the paper would listen. She called, and as luck would have it, Charles Farrell, the man who had written the article on the houseboat wreck, answered the phone. She told him about her thought patterns she had seen from Lee, and that there was a possibility that he might still be alive. 
but unconscious. She was met with a fair deal of skepticism. Farrell asked her to explain her visions and how they worked. Nancy told him that all she needed was a name, and she could see and hear things to know what the person was like. Farrell asked for a concrete example, and after a few moments, Nancy was able to tell him things about his editor at the newspaper. She was accurate. Then he asked for anything she could tell him about Lee Sillenberg. Strong-willed, energetic, and bright. He wasn't the type of person who would have given up. He would have fought hard to survive. She went on to explain a bit about the Sillenbergs. She said that they were very religious, and that the family had been through this one time before when Lee's brother Ray nearly died of rheumatic fever at ten years old. Farrell was intrigued, and after checking with William Sillenberg, who was in Delaware looking for his son, he realized that Nancy's assertions fully checked out. Farrell drove to Nancy's house, picked her up, and then they drove to the Delaware shoreline visiting the Bayview and Augustine wildlife areas. Nancy had thought that the boat had sunk somewhere in the vicinity of the Delaware shoreline, and if she was close to the scene, her visions might become stronger. In an article about Nancy, Farrell wrote that she gazed silently into the Delaware River as if seeking a message from the waters. Nancy was in the middle of a vision that carried her out over the sea. She saw Lee swimming and felt his panic as he did not know which direction he was swimming in. This is primarily because Lee wore glasses and they were lost in the Atlantic. But Lee was determined. He was keeping cool. And then panic set in. A chain or cable got tangled on his leg and he was dragged down under the black, churning waters of the storming nighttime Atlantic. Nancy turned to Farrell and said, I don't think he made it. She was overcome with sadness as they walked back to the car. Farrell asked her if she knew when the bodies would wash up, and she nodded solemnly in the affirmative. Nancy knew that Frank's body would be found that day. She was right about this, as Frank's body had been pulled from the Delaware Channel earlier that day but there's no way Nancy could have known about this as it had not been made public. As for Lee's body, she thought that it would likely be located on Wednesday, two days from then. She didn't know where, but felt that a map might help. Farrell had a road map handy and unfolded it on the hood of his compact car. She immediately pointed to the mouth of the Apoquinimink River, confirmed that was the place, and was driven home. That Thursday, Lee was located at the mouth of the river by an ecology group doing some field research. Nancy was right about the location, but she was off by a mere few hours. During the autopsy, the coroner found marks on one of Lee's legs that appeared like it had been wrapped in some sort of cable, just like Nancy had envisioned. After this break, we'll have one more short case featuring Nancy Myers Etley, a case involving a truly horrific event. The case began in Dover, Delaware, where Nancy found herself presenting at a police conference. After playing a psychic development game with the police to help them realize that everyone has some innate psychic ability, there was a banquet with a meet-and-greet. In the banquet hall, Sergeant John D. Heverin, 
the man who had arranged for Nancy's presentation at the conference, grabbed her arm and escorted her over to a man a few feet away. Heverin said, Nancy, I'd like you to meet Paul Bell. He's with the FBI out of Dover. Paul has a question for you, Nancy. Bell nodded and introduced himself. He then said, I thought that if you could predict what my next interesting case is going to be, well, if you can do that, then I'll have a lot more confidence in this, uh, what will you need to figure that out? Nancy replied, incorporating Bell's temporary loss for words. Well, if I can really do this, uh, I shouldn't need to know anything, should I? Bell sat back and stared at her. Nancy wondered if she could work in such a place, with so many people around. She stared at Agent Bell, and the noise just faded away. She was overtaken by a horrific image of piles of dead and rotting corpses in a rural, grassy courtyard of some sort. She looked at him and said, It's a multiple homicide, and it's pretty brutal, and it's one person. She was at a police conference, and she was surrounded by various law enforcement officers who were curious about her vision. They queried her about the homicide and if she could provide any additional information. Nancy replied, There are hundreds of bodies. They died in very close time to each other. Asphyxiation. She was asked to explain the vision. How could one person kill everyone at the same time? Nancy peered reluctantly into the scene once more. The images swam back into her mind, and this time a single face rose out of the middle of a pile of bodies. He was an average-looking white male in his thirties. He had dark hair, but what frightened her was his eyes. In them, she saw madness. The visage kept growing until it eclipsed the scene beneath it and filled her mind. A chill wormed its way through her. She stated that, It's so irrational. I think it must be wrong. But this is what I'm seeing. Piles of bodies under a midday sun. Some picnic tables and all these dead people. There are children in the piles. It's awful. That's all I see. And silence. It's utterly quiet. Not even a breeze. She continued. This just doesn't make any sense. I don't know how anyone could asphyxiate all these people. This is crazy. I gotta be wrong. It has to be wrong. Agent Bell looked at her and said, You watch. I'm going to get stuck with this mess. A year and a half later, Nancy received a phone call from Agent Bell. He led with, Never let me ask you about what my next interesting assignment will be. Bell said that he was at a special hangar at the Dover Air Force Base. Just days before, the Reverend Jim Jones had forced cyanide-laced drinks upon his followers, resulting in the largest mass suicide in history where 918 people lost their lives. Most of the victims were United States citizens, and the government was in charge of bringing the bodies home. It was 1978, and there was already a large morgue built into the hangar at the Dover Air Force Base to process Vietnam War victims. The bodies of the Jonestown Massacre were brought into the same facility, and Agent Bell had been assigned to help identify the bodies. Bell said, You know how cyanide kills, don't you, Nancy? It paralyzes the breathing muscles. The victims are asphyxiated.
This episode was researched and written by me, Tim Woolworth. The final audio engineering and creative soundscapes are from my fellow explorer of the unknown, Joshua Sean from Zero G ITC. Hopefully this episode made a little bit of our paranormal world more normal for you. As always, if you have any personal anecdotes, observations, or alternate explanations you would like to share on this or any other topic we've covered, or just maybe you would like to drop a note to tell us about any encounters you've had with the unknown, you can always reach us via our email, contact at walkintheshadows.com. Once again, that's contact, spelled C-O-N-T-A-C-T, at walkintheshadows.com. If you want to learn more about this podcast or myself, please visit our Walk in the Shadows website. The link is in the show notes. On our website, you can find the resources used for this series, our social media accounts, our mailing list, and our Patreon should you decide to support us. Your support directly helps us keep high-quality paranormal content delivered regularly to the podcast player of your choice. If you're so inclined, another way you can support us is by simply subscribing and reviewing this podcast. And please, tell a friend or share on social media. It really does help. Most importantly, thank you for your time spent walking in the shadows with me. I know your time is valuable, so I really appreciate you being here in this moment. Until next episode, may you and yours be healthy, prosperous, and treated with kindness by everyone and everything you meet, both in the light and in the shadows.